before we get to today's episode, we wanted to give a special offer to Glossy Podcast listeners to join Glossy Plus. With a Glossy Plus membership, you get early access to podcast episodes, all of Glossy's content, event discounts, private Slack channels, and more. To join, use the code Hillary25, that's H-I-L-A-R-Y 25, for 25% off an annual subscription. Now on to the episode. Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes, and today's guest is John Belay, the CEO of Not Standard. In this episode, John discussed the evolution of menswear, bringing custom-made products to the direct consumer category, and how his brand fits into the future of retail. Hope you enjoy. Hi, John. Hi, Hillary. Thanks for having me on this morning. Of course. So to start, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what Not Standard is? Of course. So Not Standard, like many of your guests on here, um, has a heavy product aspect and a heavy service aspect. So at its core, it's a custom menswear company. So custom blazers, custom suits, jackets, chinos, shirts, everything you can imagine in menswear, we do custom. Mm-hmm. That's on the product side. We have proprietary relationships with some big Italian mills, big English mills that help us with some of the nicest inputs in the world Mm -hmm. in terms of the fabric we actually use to make that custom. And on the service side, we are a team of style and tailoring experts. So as a customer, when you come into Not Standard, you're working with someone who only works in custom menswear 24-7. They're an expert in your fit, an expert in style, an expert in what to recommend for an occasion. And so when you package that up, You have a very, very unique business model, both on the custom product side and the very unique service side. Mm -hmm. And when did did you start the company? On the clock, 2012. Mm -hmm. Uh, So myself and and Matthew Mueller uh, started in 2012, brought in our first round of angel investors, Q1 uh, 2012. And we launched uh, an office here in New York City. And actually had an office um, in Dubai that was facilitating some uh, production. And is back to the original origins of the business um, is where the original inspiration came from back in the Dubai days. Mm-hmm. So through, the, uh, through a little bit of uh, market testing, we were able to first start servicing consumers in 2012. Great. And tell us a little bit about the market for menswear, especially custom menswear at the time, and what you were sort of seeing in the market and, and saw an opportunity for. At the time is very different than today, uh-huh. both of which, you know, very beneficial for, for our business. But at the time, there was such a pent-up demand in the United States. Because if you think of, of America versus, you know, Western Europe or East Asia, we're only 250 years old as a company, give mm-hmm. or take a few years. So when you know, America was settled, there was trades. People had crafts. Uh, we settled, you know, the United States, and then people moved on to a, a new generation of uh, trades and talents and the like. And so there was a wave of tailors that came in uh, in the 1800s and through the 1900s. And I think there's a statistic that um, you know, at one point in time in, in the United States, uh, 95% of all of our clothing in the early 1900s was made on the island of Manhattan. It's something yeah. I, I just heard recently. And so that was, that was 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. So as you start um, going through the generations and we become you know, better at certain things as, as one economy, we start outsourcing a lot. So 2011, uh, when Matt and myself are, are looking at this as a business model, 
you have a fragmentation of old world tailors throughout the United States. And that's all that there is, right? Mm -hmm. So you have people flying in from Italy, people flying in from Hong Kong, servicing these clients because we don't have this all um, synced up under one brand, under one company, under one business. And so the opportunity everywhere you looked uh, seemed seemed sort of immeasurable because there was no one that had brought this all home in a non-fragmented manner. Mm-hmm. That's that's 2012, mind you, slightly different today. Um, but that's what we were looking at as the market. And there was such a pent-up demand that when the business, you know, originally sort of came out of existence, you know, arise out in 2012, the pent-up demand, people were calling from every state, from every remote location, from every big city saying, hey, if you're offering a custom suit at these prices with these fabrics, how do I get in line and how do I work with it? So that was that was 2012. Mm-hmm. And what were you doing at the time when you launched the business? At the time we launched the business, uh, so originally I come from a financial services background. I worked mm-hmm. for two, um, two investment funds in the Middle East uh, that were focused on sort of international business development, expansion, strategic real estate, uh, everything under the sun, but with a very entrepreneurial sort of twinge to it, as I think most emerging markets things are. Uh, and the unique element to it is that so many people come to emerging markets with a business model. Mm-hmm. And they say, hey, I'm going to franchise this restaurant, which is huge in London or huge in the United States. This was sort of the opposite. And, uh, you know, Matt came from a, um, a technology background and an operational background. And we thought, hey, there's something in an emerging market is actually better fit for the United States rather than going the other direction uh, against the current. So it was a little bit atypical, kind mm-hmm. of uh, what we did, but uh, unique nonetheless. So so t- take us under the hood a little bit, how you sort of set up the company to work the way that it did, bringing tailor and service for custom suits under one roof. Where did you source fabrics? How did you put that together, get, get all these people on board, and then get the word out there? Of course. So the the first sort of point of reference is in the 2018, you know, direct to consumer um, sort of brand tree, right? You've heard the same story quite a few times, and people say, you know, I found a production facility, and I was able to work with them directly, package it up with beautiful packaging, and sell direct to consumer, mm-hmm. and that probably covers 99% of the direct consumer movement, um, you know, plus or minus a few. Right. What we've did, what we've done is, is very different than that. So it's, it's twofold. First of which, it is that direct consumer relationship that we're all familiar with in that we're working directly with everyone from fabric suppliers to manufacturers. But the difference is that what we are doing now did not exist before we developed it specifically around creating individually patterned custom product for each customer that comes through the door. So typically how it works is a customer comes into a Saks or a Bergdorf or a Bloomingdale's and he says, this is my size and he gets a pre-cut pattern um, off the rack. Mm -hmm. One step up is made to measure. They'll do a made to measure event where they'll say, you know, I've come to the Hugo Boss or the Armani or the Z Zenia made to measure event. And that client will get measured and you'll create, um, you know, pattern A, we'll mix, we'll mix with sleeve C, with jacket D. And it's really just a buildup of patterns that already exist. Mm-hmm. What we set out to accomplish and have done is, what if every single client got his own unique pattern? So what if we could get enough data so that every time someone came in and they were measured, the pattern would be specific for them. So it would be truly what the old world calls bespoke but we're now calling digital bespoke because mm-hmm. it's it's a little bit more accurate than the old world bespoke. Uh, and so if you put that all together, you end up with ultimately a very different product than ever existed. So back to your original question, 
when you think about this direct-to-consumer movement, we're not only changing um, you know, the way that we work you know, with the facilities and with all of the tailors, but we've also created something that never has existed, which is individual patterns for each client. So that's what's exciting is on both ends of the spectrum, it's very different. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the role of data in that customer experience. If you are someone who's coming to the brand for the first time, what do you have to input? What do you do for them? Is it is it a hybrid online, offline experience, or is it all online? And then how do you build it out from there? Two good questions, uh, Lacey, there. And, and <laughs> I'll, um, I'll start with the role of data. Mm-hmm. And you know, the role of data, you've got the front end, um, kind of the, you know, the sexy part that the consumer sees and benefits from. Then you've got all of the back end, which is what really makes the business unique. So starting in the back of house, the, the role of data is you have these individual measurements from all these clients that have come in from cities around the world, from all the big US MSAs and the like. And so that data is essentially feeding in what is what are our own proprietary patterns. So everyone who comes in and gets measured at a not standard um, you know, showroom or measures online is going to end up in a pattern unique to that uh, customer's measurement, mm-hmm. but ultimately backed in and calibrated by lots of data. So how do we know that's correct? How do we know the shoulder is going to fit properly? How do we know the length is going to be you know, within stock? That is all data that leads us to that conclusion. So we built to build our own patterns uh, for each customer based upon that data. That's the back of house. On the front side, you know, we're extremely conscious of the paradox of choice that occurs um, with customers because we have these proprietary relationships with Lorpiana, Zenia, Dorme, and can show so much product to a customer that it could be, you know, if we really uh, open the floodgates, it could be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So how do you take you know, what we know guys will like, what we know is in style, what we know is on, you know, mannequins in Italy and mannequins, you know, uptown on the Upper East Side. And how do we put it all together and sort of curate this experience so that the client sees a hundred of the really 7,000 options and wherever he wants to go deeper or his fiance wants to go deeper if, if <laughs> he or she's helping him, mm-hmm. um, that you end up um, being able to show, hey, we have a lot more options than what you're seeing within this kind of small sample set. But let's use the data to say, this is where most guys like to start mm-hmm. with fabrics that look like this, textures that look like this. It makes the customer experience a lot smoother. Mm-hmm. And with that data that you've accumulated over the years, what have you learned about the way that, you know, not just how suits fit and, and how they should fit, but what about men's shopping behavior and those customer profiles that you can really flesh out when you have, you know, any customer that comes in the door has to build a profile that's pretty valuable today when there's so much competition. It's incredibly valuable. And and starting at the at the really obvious point, like we have, you know, we have skin body measurements on, you know, thousands and thousands, thousands of males. And, and I don't know who else in the world would even have that, right? Mm-hmm. Because even at even at your local doctor, you're not taking a bicep and a chest and a stomach measurement. We have that first and foremost. So we are we are tracking the way that guys like things to fit off of that. So I feel that in all of the digital measurement space and all of the, you know, all of the businesses that help people minimize returns and the like, we're two steps ahead of that mm-hmm. because we actually have skin measurements. But more on the customer behavior and the data, you know, men are very, very loyal. And that hasn't been news for a long time anecdotally, but now it's a data-driven reality. So we can see that our customers come back in between a 40 and 50% repeat rate mm. within 12 calendar months of buying for the first time. If we see them before, 
the first six months for another purchase. They're probably going to come back again one more time within the subsequent quarter. So there's all these tracks that these customers can go on, and we're we're really able to predict when we'll see them again based upon what do they think of the experience, what do they think of the product, and what are they using it for. So there's so many ways that you can be a purchaser from Not Standard. You can be a suit and shirt commoditized business purchaser. Mm-hmm. Blue suits, gray suits, white and blue shirts. You can be a custom casual purchaser. You have lots of blazers and chinos. You have some really cool pattern shirts and the like. That customer comes back in a different velocity, in different duration than the more business uh, buyer. So we have all these tracks that the customers have proven out over our six, almost seven years on the clock here. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to be able to work backwards into that and say, hey, we can predict that you're going to need this and we want to be ready for when you come back again into the showroom because we don't want to be reactionary. We want to be proactive and say, we know what you need for your next occasion and we want to be one step ahead in giving that to you. We're taking a quick break to tell you about our new show, The Glossy Beauty Podcast. Hosted by Glossy Beauty Editor Priya Rao, The Glossy Beauty Podcast features discussions with leaders in the beauty and wellness industries. Guests include Linda Wells, Alicia Yoon, and Miranda Kerr, and new episodes are released every Thursday on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Anchor FM. Don't miss it. Now back to the episode. So you mentioned a few ways that all of this data makes the business smarter overall. So just, you know, predicting what the customer's next purchase is going to be. But then also you mentioned reducing returns. How how does all of that work? And how do you sort of package all of this, um, you know, smarter retailing into, you know, the pitch to not only customers, but, you know, the investors that you're working with and the the ecosystem around the company? Yeah, smarter retailing, if you look at in the old sort of garment district way, you know, starting into like what's been what's been standard first and foremost. So starting high level and getting very, very granular on your question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a no inventory model, right? So we have very, very light inventory. Everything is made to order through proprietary relationships with the mills uh, and having basically kind of call options on all of this fabric um, that we've reserved out for every season. So from A to Z, our supply chain is very, very different from traditional retail. So just starting there ahead of talking about returns, um, we're in a very different situation from a core business perspective. So that's really intriguing because in today's wholesale retail model, um, a lot of the headwinds are because of excess inventory, not knowing what to sell. We can be completely reactionary for the most part on what customers are saying and adapt in real time for that. So that um, on the whole supply chain is is a market difference. More specific on the returns and, and refunds, which has been a huge thing for retailers mm-hmm. in general, it isn't something that we struggle with because ultimately we're making things directly for a customer's measurements. We're making things directly for a customer's unique body type. And if we are saying that we have hundreds of thousands of bodies in this data set, then we're so accurate with the end product. And when it shows up, it has the customer's name on the inside, it has the customer's unique customizations, his buttons, everything that he picked out and asked for, uh, the probably of a return is, is essentially zero mm-hmm. because it is what the customer sat across from the stylist and worked on and built. So it's a, real, it's a real advantage to our business model, but one that we don't take lightly because we have to deliver to the customer's liking. It has to be on time. It has to be exactly how he ordered it. And if all of those things go right, then you have no reason for a return. So it puts us into an obligatory position to be over-delivering on customer service, and then we get the added benefit of having um, essentially a, a zero return rate. Mm-hmm. And as you're, you know, you've seen how customers come back once they're in the door. What about those customers who think like, oh yeah, I don't need a custom suit. Like, what about getting those people in the door who might have thought like, this is a little bit high level for me. <laughs> 
That is, so, so the conception of custom suiting mm-hmm. versus the things we make is a, is a great talking point here because, you know, I'm wearing, you know, listeners can't see, mm-hmm. but I'm wearing a blazer and custom chinos and a button down shirt. This is, but you know, for all intents and purposes, everything is custom and this is not a custom suit. This is what I wear probably three out of five days to the office as mm-hmm. do many guys. Right. So we have many clients saying, um, hey, you know, I, I'm only gonna use you for blazers and chinos or blazers and trousers, uh, blazers, trousers and shirts. That is the exact same thing as a custom suit. So ultimately everyone is just buying the same thing and just labeling it differently. So our custom casual offering from linen button downs into short sleeve shirts into the field jacket product, which is a very casual, traditional um, sort of old style jacket that we started selling here recently. All of that spans, you know, probably 85% of males' closets um, just before you get to athletic wear, mm-hmm. right? So we're delivering everything from you know, even custom shorts uh, to custom polos. We're providing this all-in platform for guys to come in and buy something custom under one brand with the same measurements uh, time and time again and going through their entire closet and stopping just short of athletic wear. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to the connotation of, hey, maybe custom suits aren't for me. Custom suits aren't for a lot of people, but you have so many things uh, in your daily wardrobe from button downs and slacks, for example, that we do incredibly well and guys use us for here 365 days a year. Mm-hmm. So how does that all boil down into your marketing strategy? How do you, how do you acquire customers? We acquire customers. Well, everyone has the same answer to this who's on your podcast. So I'll give you, you know, obviously the same answer. And then I'll tell you about a few different nuances here. So uh, you correctly um, sort of said, how do you acquire customers if you're going to be serving the same message um, across the board? Who are you trying to target? Mm-hmm. You know, in today's day and age, the kind of the custom casual and the business casual movement um, shows so well. Uh, you know, graphically and through all the usual channels from Facebook and Instagram and, and Google ads, you know, our collateral of everything that we've made shows outfits in so many different lights um, that it, it puts a big net out there and lets guys know that we're so much more dynamic um, than just a custom suit and just a custom blazer. So when we think about our, our, our customer acquisition strategy, we work backwards from what are our customers like? How do we photograph that and how do we serve that online Mm -hmm. to get people into a showroom? And so the bigger part of it, and then perhaps more interesting, so because most people have a very similar answer in the digitally native space on you know, who they're using to acquire customers. Right, it makes it competitive. It makes it very competitive. And so one, one thesis that we're working with that we think is very different is our ability to work with a customer in person on his first order sets us apart from anyone else in the digitally native space. Because mm-hmm. what, we're all, what we're essentially doing is we're saying, we don't have a pre-baked product for you to come in and grab off the shelf. What we have is a dynamic offering of Italian and English fabrics. We have expert stylists. And when sitting across from someone, you can build everything from a custom tuxedo to a custom blazer into you know five flannel shirts for the winter. You can build anything. And if your first touch point in knowing how dynamic that is happens in one of our eight, now nine showrooms, then your probability of being a happy, long-term, high-repeating customer is markedly different. So what that backs into is we're taking all of our digital efforts and we're driving customers into a showroom for their first touch point. If you're in a really remote area and you want to check out online, you can of course still do that. Mm -hmm. But what we're really pushing for is, hey, as a digitally native brand, 
We want to bring people into a physical location, give us 30 to 60 minutes of your time, let us sort of indoctrinate you with everything we can do as a business. And then from here, if you want to order remotely for the rest of your uh, customer lifetime experience, that's just fine with us. Mm -hmm. But we're really betting on that first 30 to 60 minutes being very crucial for us. And so all of our customer acquisition strategy is predicated on let's get the guy into a showroom mm-hmm. and give him an A double plus experience and he'll be loyal to us forever as long as we keep servicing and meeting his expectation. Right. So how has that influenced the way you've built out, built out the retail footprint? So it, they have to go hand in hand because to your point, uh, if a customer's first experience and, and we're saying, hey, come into one of these showrooms, you have to start upping the ante. Mm-hmm. And you look at the Disney native brands and a lot of the scales are tipping towards some of these you know, more brick and mortar type models. We've really split the difference in between there because our model does not have a massive amount of inventory. So we're not under a big obligatory mandate to create these beautiful built out stores with uh, all types of lighting to merchandise products because ultimately our showrooms will be you know, a beautiful compilation of fabrics. You'll have, you know, a dozen samples all over the showroom to show you one of everything that we that we sell. Then you'll have a bunch of expert stylists working in there. So we're really not on the hook for a very, you know, illustrious build-out mm-hmm. like you'd see on Madison Avenue because the fabrics will sell themselves. The stylists are such experts that they'll sell themselves. And, you know, that loop creates a customer experience that gets us off the hook from having to do a traditional retail build-out. Mm-hmm. Now, all of that said, everyone has to up the ante uh, in their current brick-and-mortar model or in their current showrooming model. We call ours the, the showrooming model. And so what's, what's that mean? It means that a customer has to be able to come in and he has to get it really quickly. You have to come in and rather than being explained by someone saying, hey, here's what we do, A to Z, you may have noticed this or that, they have to really get it. So what we've been working on is how do you create that first touch point to be um, you know, something, whether it's a graphic on the wall or whether it's an iPad scrolling on the table when you walk in, which is what we're doing now, that shows you, hey, here's how the process works. Here's what you can expect. Here's the technology we use to do this. Here's how long everything takes to come back in. Giving the customer an additional touch point to that uh, just makes the experience better. And as you start you know, growing more and more um, you know, showrooms uh, in different geographic areas, you have to be able to get people up to speed quicker, both your staff and other customers. And so I think for our brand and many others, um, really the obligation is on us to continually improve the retail experience um, without giving away the farm mm-hmm. and going to a traditional build-out model. Right. And what about other retail partners? Is that something that you've considered in, in terms of assisting more customers? more touch points and elevating, you know, just the brand awareness. And like you mentioned, people used to go to like a Saks or Bloomingdale's. What about introducing the not standard experience into those retail formats? Uh, Other retail partners as the department store or as in other brands that we'd partner with? Um, Either one. I I was thinking like a department store, if you would have like a presence there, but if there are other brands you're partnering with, yeah, that too. Uh, Yeah, both of which, uh, you know, unique strategies in their own right. We're more bullish on one than the other. But um, As you think about department stores, first and foremost, um, my supposition is that for a long time, people that ran Disney native brands, they they thought of the internet as a means to an end. Mm -hmm. And they thought of uh, brick and mortar retail as a means to an end. Hey, here's how I acquire more customers. Here's how I open doors, acquire more customers. Uh, The thought that should go into working with a big department store, like a Bloomingdale's, who we work with, um, or like a Nordstrom's or a Saks, is, hey, this is going to be my partner. This is not just uh, a channel for me. This is a partner. We have to do everything together in complete sync in order to protect uh, our brand. For not standard, that's 
incredibly difficult because because of you know the aforementioned lack of existing product because everything mm-hmm. is kind of built up as a one-off for each customer it's hard in the traditional retail sense um, to put things behind, you know, in a glass window and say, hey, not standard is now available at Bloomingdale's or Nordstrom's or some combination thereabouts. So what we've done at Bloomingdale's, we've been in, in the 59th Street Bloomingdale's um, with a shop and shop for the last 24 months. Mm-hmm. And so what we've done um, in order to be successful is we've put our own staff in there, our own people. We've been able to run our own build out and our own operation, which has put us into an experience that feels like a little slice of one of our showrooms. And because all our showrooms are completely run by us in our own leases, in our own spaces, we control and have full autonomy over that. You you give up a lot of autonomy going with a retailer in exchange for more foot traffic, right. more exposure, et cetera. Um, so as we think about partners and we think about you know Bloomingdale's, you have to create you know, a working relationship with the retailer where they understand your goals and can let you uh, sell the brand in the way that you know resonates the most with customers. I think that's the big challenge for a lot of retailers is, hey, I want to give it my best efforts. Does your forum allow me to express everything that's great about my brand and my people mm-hmm. and the product? And that's where I think a lot of brands are working at uh, in this day and age. Mm-hmm. And you also have to get back what you need to do your business right, which is that customer data. You still need to own that. You can't really have the retailer coming in as the disintermediary for that piece of the business. And that and that with the department stores is a big point of discussion uh, because the department store has brought that customer in in some cases and others they've come in for you. Uh, so how do you create an everybody win scenario mm-hmm. uh, whereby maybe the customer came in just for not standard? Or maybe the customer came in um, with his wife because she was buying shoes on a subsequent floor. Um, and what is the split there? So for, for our business, because all of the data on the customer's body measurements is in our proprietary uh, tech platform, we'll at least have to always be working with that. Mm-hmm. Because there's no way that we can make a product without knowing you know, the 28 unique measurements um, of a client. So we'll always have to be on the forefront of that. As it relates to his email address and who's contacting him, that's always a unique point of discussion. Um, and we found that the department stores are incredibly flexible in working with you to say, hey, I have a strategy for you that used to work for my, that has worked for our clients for the last 20, 30 years. Um, let us show you how we mobilize our clients in our store. Mm-hmm. So we found that to be successful as we sort of open up and say, we want to work with you on this. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, the idea of retail as a service when it comes to next generation brands. You think of Stitch Fix or Rent the Runway. Obviously, they're, they're still working with product. They're still selling clothing in some way, but it's changing the way that the, that product gets to the customer. How do you think that, that position is not standard in its, in its category in a better way than if you were just making really nice suits? Well, I'll tell you what excites me about, about those two analogies. And those are both great businesses. Uh, my wife is an avid Rent the Runway mm-hmm. uh, monthly user. Um, and Stitch Fix... Um, you know, they've, they've done a phenomenal job. So I'll tell you what, uh, why I get excited about this. They are ultimately, we'll talk about Stitch Fix for a second, uh, great business model. It's ultimately um, a conduit for other brands, right? So as a service, you can put your brand on here and we will sell your brand to our customers. Ultimately, Stitch Fix, and they may have one or two private labels, but it's not the curator and creator of these brands, but they provide a phenomenal service to all of these people who really trust them and who show up with these boxes on their doorstep, right? So like as an aggregator and distributor um, and as advice, they have a phenomenal business. Rent the Runway, um, a slightly different flavor. 
er, you know all the designers top um, you know top choices and they put them on in perpetuity up for rental so that you know women can rent them and have them show up on their door and ultimately rent the runway isn't having to say this is what uh, we've created for this season mm-hmm. not standard is taking that level of service and that level of expectation and then we're also serving up our own proprietary product into it so we own the entirety of the supply chain and that's how you can you can truly see this going vertical is we're creating our own product we're creating things that um, you know for next month will be ready to wear and custom sweaters uh, we have a proprietary field jacket that we built out and designed these are our products not products that we've purchased from someone else mm-hmm. and then we'll provide an a-plus service so we're coming out from both ends we're gonna give you an a-plus product that we've developed that's in style and we'll customize it when you sit across from us and we'll also give you an a-plus service and so in comparison to those two business models which I'll say again are phenomenal um, we have a different piece of the value chain in addition to that which makes me really excited because we have full autonomy on it mm-hmm. and but in, in general when you see where people's interests are going we talked about how competitive and, and crowded the direct and dig, direct to consumer and digitally native brand spaces. How do you how do you see the service piece of the business as almost like a you know a protective moat for okay someone can't just come in and say let's let's do that for this you know what I mean like that comparative business model it's you know it's like the defense you know the defensibility of the brand and the business kind of lies in that that other piece of the company hundred percent and so. Um so directly to your point on that, um, the service for us is a necessary means to get end product. So mm-hmm. it can never, never be shortcutted. So as we continue to build and scale our business, we're completely reliant on the expertise trained internally of all of our stylists. So that service generally cannot be cut out of our business model. It cannot go slack. It cannot be diluted down. So that will always be a piece of not standard as we're selling custom. Do we have a few ready-to-wear pieces coming in the future? Of course. And so service will become less um, you know, of a big deal there. It'll still be a focus, but it won't become a necessary means to an end. So as we look at the other brands, as their product becomes more and more popular and more of a household name, and there's a few that have done a great job at doing that, as it becomes more popular, service will become um, it'll become less of a need because the brand's already proven itself, mm-hmm. right? It's already proven itself, and you won't have to, to talk to someone who is a an ambassador who's overly passionate in one of their startup showrooms who's really excited about it. You'll say, hey, I've, this brand has already been vetted, so as long as they run the logistics well to me on both the purchase and the return, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. For not standard, the moat will always exist and that we'll have to have people passionately talk about the product day in and day out in order to continuously be successful. And so that will always exist within our business plan and it will always be a key differentiator uh, for us versus a lot of these other brands that are sprouting up. Mm-hmm. Do you think in general that the direct-to-consumer brand era that we're in has changed the way that men shop and, and dress? I really do. I really do. And and I have to qualify that statement with a few different things in that the direct-to-consumer, the direct-to-consumer movement is on the verge in a lot of ways, um, if people aren't careful, of being slightly diluted, Mm -hmm. being slightly cheapened. Because there's so many of these brands sprouting up, doing a great job packaging things up, doing a great job coming up with a new age logo done by one of three firms and PR run by one of five firms and packaging all up and, and rolling out to the masses. And as that is done in perpetuity, if the product doesn't back that promise, then some of these direct consumer brands could start to dilute it for everyone else that's providing you know, a full service and a full product that um, is uniquely different. Right. So males now are thinking, you know, in some way, shape, or form, if they want a product, they're thinking, who is doing that? 
uh, who, like, how else can I acquire this product? How else can I acquire this service from a new brand? Because people are, are forming almost this tribe of brands around them of things that they relate with. So it becomes part of your identity based upon, you know, the clothes you wear, or the people that you know about. And so as males, you're starting to think about, I know about these shoes from this company that's been around for five years and I love them. And that's part of my identity. And I know about this watch. I know about this, you know, these type of sunglasses. And all of that stacks up into what is ultimately like individuals' personalities. So as people become um, more associative to brands, it is directly changing the way that guys are shopping mm-hmm. because they're thinking, does this brand fit into my tribe of brands based on the other things I've acquired? And I think it's it's really you know driving consumer behavior in, in a very different way. And the real opportunity that we have versus other direct consumer brands is our average customer is trusting us uh, with a substantial investment, right? So a lot of these direct consumer brands can be $25 a month or they can be, you know, $95 for a pair of shoes, you know, what, fill in the blank on, on whatever the price point is. Our average customer is trusting us with a substantial purchase. He's saying, I'm going to tux- custom tuxedo from you and a pair of trousers. And our average order value, you know, being well over $1,000 means that in this direct consumer movement, we have to be very, very tight. We have to be very, very organized. And we have to deliver above and beyond in both product and service. So in this DTC movement where, um, you know, the male customer is expecting different things, we have to be above and beyond because our price point is materially different from you know the rest of the average group of appeal providing product. Mm-hmm. And what do you think that means for traditional brands and retailers and the you know the legacies, the incumbents to compete? You mentioned you know a, a company like Bloomingdale's looking at a not standard and saying how can we work with you? That's obviously forward facing. But what about the more like specialty men's retailers, the traditional ones? What do they do in this landscape? So the wholesale retail model as a whole uh, is, is fractured. It's broken. Mm-hmm. And people are finding ways to, to try and reinvent it. And, and these stores have done phenomenal jobs providing great business, great service for decades to customers, right? And so they're incredibly savvy and they're making moves in real time to say, hey, how do I pick this up and, and how do I help you? The real equity um, exists within your customer relationships. And these specialty stores have them. Now, the fact that we can deliver for... $1,400 in a custom tuxedo, we can deliver such a high quality suit, um, you know, that's completely custom, that is a great Italian fabric that exists because we are not, we're not working with a wholesaler along the way. And we're not selling to them for half that price and they're marking up and reselling it again. So fundamentally, our business is not set up to operate in that wholesale retail model, not mm-hmm. only because we don't have product, but it's just, again, it's not built out that way. Right. And so many of these men's specialty tours are saying, hey, how could, we, how could we do this? How could we work this out and find something that's unique? And so the traditional licensing, the traditional commission on sales has started to come up, I feel like, a little bit more in the last 18 months as these people say, hey, I have a fantastic loyal customer base. You have a fantastic product. How could we work together? I understand that your model is not set up to you know, to sell to me wholesale and then me to retail to people. But how do we do that together? And so I think the the savviest of these specialty retailers and department stores are saying, hey, what do I have that is helpful to you and how do we make it both work economically? Mm-hmm. I think that really, it really lies on the customers, first and foremost, and then secondary to that, the other brand relationships they hold. So if a specialty retailer says, hey, you know, I also work with this other brand, and I can mobilize customers that want to come in for this women's wear brand in tandem with the men's wear brand, do an event around it. 
that's exciting for us. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of these um, you know, retailers and department stores have that power and they're starting to use it. And it's exciting to see where things can go from there. Mm-hmm. So it's better to accommodate than to try to fight back. It is. It is. Ultimately, this is not a winner-take-all market. You know, and you know, you've had people. I think even on this podcast talk about, hey, it's the end of the billion-dollar brand, mm-hmm. right? So the end of the, if the, the end of the billion-dollar brand means there'll be multiple winners, then take that one step further and say, let's start collaborating. So let's start collaborating with brands that are like us but non-competitive, retailers that are similar to us but non-competitive, and if there's a little bit of overlap and competition, like find a way to work it out where both sides would make money that's incremental to their business plan. So we don't have any you know, malice or desire um, against any competitors. It's, it's, we're obviously in a competitive space and competitive market, but what we're ultimately trying to do is um, you know, service the most amount of customers we possibly can um, as quick as we can do it. And so whatever pathway that we need to take, um, we evaluate. Great. I think we're just about out of time, but thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Silver, for having me on. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. If you've been enjoying the Glossy podcast and aren't a Glossy Plus subscriber yet, it's time to consider joining to get access to all of Glossy's content, member events, ticket discounts, Slack chats, and more. As a reward for listening, use the code Hillary25 at glossy.co slash plus to get 25% off an annual subscription. That's H-I-L-A-R-Y 25 at glossy.co slash plus. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.